I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. There's a new documentary out from the uh, Vancouver-born filmmaker C.J. Wallace called Stu's Show, and Stu himself joins me now. Stu's Show stacks life and times are chronicled in uh, this film that looks at uh, his work as a television historian and archivist. He grew up a fan of television, then breaks into show business as a wrangler of audiences for television sitcoms taping in Hollywood. He hands out tickets for shows over booking to ensure capacity, and it's uh, a foot in the door. He soon uh, does audience warm-ups prior to tapings. He then gets into the orbit of Lucille Ball. He's warned that she's tough and perhaps unfriendly, that whatever illusions he has as a fan might turn to disillusion once they meet. The Lucy that Stu encounters is motherly, supportive, and soon he's entrusted by her and her husband Gary Morton with cataloging her vast film archive. I'll ask Stu about uh, what Ball was like and Gary Morton. Mr. Shostak ends up uh, working as Morton's assistant on Ball's last sitcom, Life with Lucy, in 1986. The second half of the documentary is about Stu's meeting of Janine Casson, a Lucille Ball superfan. They connect over a shared love of old television and nostalgia. The relationship develops amidst uh, the backdrop of Stu's successful internet radio show, what would become uh, podcasting, which began in 2006. Stu attracts all sorts of guests on his programs all over uh, and over the years, develops close friendships. And it's a who's who, as we see in the film, Wink Martindale, Tony Dow, Michael Cole, Ed Asner, Margaret O'Brien, and so many more. Janine suffers a brain aneurysm, and we see chronicled in the film the struggle with the medical system that Stu has to encounter to ensure Janine's care. It's a personal story, often harrowing, but one not to miss. You can visit Stu's website at stewsshow.com. The film is now available via streaming. C.J. Wallace's Twitter handle is at 40FPS. We taped this interview last week. Okay. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Stu Shostak. Mr. Shostak, good morning. Hello. Please call me Stu. I will, Stu. Um, this is such a delightful film. And um, uh, I guess the first question that I have after watching is, how is Janine? Everybody asks that, and uh, thank you for asking. She's doing fine. Um, people forget that she was interviewed for this film, too, and they get so wrapped up with the second half of the film that they forget that uh, the first part, she's uh, telling her story and talking and doing all that, and that's uh, pretty much how she is today. Yeah, well, that's great, because she's, what, at the heart of the film, as I, as I, I watched it twice now, um, is wow. love, and it's, it's just the, the love of show business, the, the love of television on your part, but it's a love yep. between the two of you, um, and, and that's, I think, what will draw audiences to the film, is just how um, unique, um, sometimes uh, hilarious, um, how deep that love is, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's, it's twofold. I only agreed to do the film uh, not to brag about my relationship with Lucille Ball or to, to show off about my own show or my love of television, which is important, of course, but to show you know, the love that two people have that, that holds them together during a medical crisis. And, you know, when you care about somebody enough, you're going to fight tooth and nail to get that person well, regardless of what it takes. And uh, that was the message I wanted to convey was that uh, people in this country, at least, we, you, you have a much better uh, socialized medicine in Canada than we have here in the U.S., and it's a for-profit, and that always seems to be number one with any business anywhere. But when there are people's lives involved, you've got to kind of stand up for that and kind of cut through the crap to get to uh, the people that are going to help 
that loved one get well. We'll talk about television in just a sec, but I, I, I want to talk about um, one of the great lessons I found in, in watching the film is that you really do have to be a, an advocate for yourself when you're a patient, when you're entering the healthcare system, and 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 especially for loved ones as well. I mean, I think that's something that, that can't be stressed enough, whether we live in Canada or in the United States, is that you do have to speak out uh, and speak up for people, don't you? Yes, you do. And when not the person, you mentioned you have to be an advocate for yourself. Well, Janine was in no condition mm-hmm. to do that. And, and had I not stepped in and had I not had to learn our system in this uh, country the way it worked as quickly as I did, I, I'm not sure she would have survived this. Um, like I said, there's a lot of wonderful people in the medical industry, but you have there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of red tape and a lot of crap that you've got to get through to get to those right people. And, yeah, you have to have somebody definitely on your side, and I think that's true regardless of what country you live in. Uh, keeping on this theme that we're talking about, about Janine, um, one of the, the great friendships that, and the, the great um, relationships that, that comes through in the film is, is that of her and Ed Asner. It, um, how would you describe the relationship? He, he was he was kind of prickly with you, but but he loved her, didn't she? Didn't he? Ed liked liked women uh, anything in a yeah. dress. Ed liked, <laughs> uh, and I I think <laughs> I think I'm safe at saying that. But there's something about Janine, and I mentioned this in the documentary that she just had a way of talking to people and just charming them beyond beyond repair and and uh people just fall in love with her and ed particularly just was you know just he was i can't i'll use the same word again because i can't think of anything else. he was just charmed by her and they they became very very close and very good friends and i was kind of just in the way of that on purpose <laughs> of course uh <laughs> but uh uh you know he he liked me too he yeah. you know i used to call him a lovable pussy cat and he'd say damn it i'm a i'm a i'm a teddy bear not a pussy cat you know <laughs> <laughs> the, the, throughout the film, we see all of your friends the, that you, you both have made over the years. Well, why do you think it is, Stu, that, that people are so drawn to you? I mean, if, if someone in the film says, you know, you have charm, you have boundless energy. Um, if, if one had to ask, say, the Wink Martindales or the Tony Dales about what it is about you that, that draws people to you, I mean, can, can you explain that somehow? Uh, you, you know, you're, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, you know... <laughs> It's really hard to to pin that down because w- without patting myself on the back and breaking my arm, <laughs> I, I I I love show business. Yeah. I've loved show business since I was a kid. I've loved every moment that I've been in it. When I was doing audience warm ups, I loved the fact that I I had an audience in front of me and I could pretty much say the producers gave me a lot of autonomy uh, there and I could say or do anything I wanted and I I knew the boundaries of good taste and all that. I I think it's the energy that I have and the passion that I show that people just appreciate that. You know, I'm I'm not exactly a shrinking violet when it comes to my opinions and and how I feel. And, um, you know, as far as Wink Martindale, he was impressed with the research I did the first time I had him on my show. I read his book, and, you know, I grew up, you know, listening to him on the radio in the Los Angeles area and watching uh-huh. him host game shows. And the same thing with Tony. You know, Tony is everybody's older brother, and, and I was a big fan of Leave it to Beaver as a kid. And when I got, you know, had these privileges of meeting them, whether we met them at, at you know, county fairs or at these autograph shows that they have all the time here in, in the U.S., and and uh, I think they're just impressed with the fact that I know their careers so well, and I don't ask them, you know, when I meet somebody for the first time, I don't ask them the same stuff that everybody asks them. Mm. If I know they did an obscure show or something that, that hasn't been talked about in 20 years, I'll bring that up, 
And that seems to impress them that, hey, you know, this guy seems to know more than the average schmo who comes up to me and says, oh, what was Eddie Haskell really like, you know? <laughs> um, and and I, I just don't do that. I, I want to show people that, that I know them beyond what the general public knows them for, and I think they like that. I mean, I, I have no explanation because, you know, Joe, I'm loud, I'm obnoxious, I'm in your face, yet people still think I'm likable, especially Janine. So go figure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she she really does. She's a, such a, a sweet, darling woman. When we watch her in the film, um, oh, yeah. it, it just seems <laughs> that the two of you um, would, would would in any other circumstance would be incompatible. But I mean, I guess it is the love of TV, the love of nostalgia, the love of show business that brought you together, isn't it? I I guess so because she's she. She can she can get loud when she wants to too. Yeah. But we're we're quite opposite in our personalities. You know, she's the anchor, she's the quiet one, she's the one that grabs me and says, Stu, you're going over the line again, you know, that <laughs> type of thing. And and I think I think if I had somebody who was just like me, we'd probably kill each other. <laughs> so so we're a pretty good team. Um you know, the the, the other thing that I was thinking about as I watched the film for the second time was, you know, as a kid watching television as you did. I mean, could you have imagined the life that you've had? No. No, I, I've, I've mentioned this on my own show a lot. It's like, you know, I'm here I am sitting across from whoever it is, Bob Barker or Dick Van Dyke, and I turn to the camera and say, you know, if you, if you told me that I would be doing this when I was 10 years old and knowing these people and these people actually like me, I would have told you to seek psychiatric help because, you know, <laughs> They say, you know, don't wish too hard, you'll get yeah. what you want. But in my case, it, it, didn't, it, it didn't bounce back negatively. We ended up truly being friends with all of these people. And I think what C.J. found in his research and in his reasoning for doing the film was, you know, I think in any medical crisis, your family and your friends personally are going to rally around you. Yeah. If they really like you and they really love you, they're, they're going to give you a lot of support. And that's what happened with us. But in our case, it was all of the friends we met for, as a result of my show, um, and, 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 and they just happened to be classic TV stars that rallied around us. And I think C.J. was intrigued by that, and I, I think he thought it would be fun to share that aspect of my life with the world. And uh, he had to twist my arm to do it because I didn't think anybody would be interested. But it turns out people are. And, and uh, we've had some issues with the way the film pivots, and it becomes you know, a fight for Janine in the second half. Some people didn't get that. They didn't get the connection between Lucille Ball and Janine and I, and they didn't get the connection of all of our friends as a result of the show, and they said it turns into this, it pivots into something that they just didn't understand. Why does it suddenly an attack on the medical industry in the United States? And fortunately, though, most people like you got it, and we're grateful for that because that was a concern of ours. Yeah, You, you mentioned your, your director, C.J. Wallace, who's uh, from here yeah. in Vancouver. Um, Absolutely. It's a terrific uh, filmmaking. Uh, what was it like to work with him in terms of, um, you mentioned his research, and, and um, so him uh, getting you to talk on camera, I mean, that's not a, a difficult task, I would assume. But, no, no, um, no, getting me to talk on camera <laughs> is a no-brainer. But getting me to twist, twist yeah. my arm, because I, you know, I didn't want to brag about my relationship with Lucy, and he, he just he came up to me after, you know, after we had met, and, and I had told him the story because he wanted to hear it. He was actually doing my show to promote his first documentary, mm. Perfect Bid, oh, yeah. which I thought was excellent. Yeah, the, uh, the, the price story, is right one, yeah. The, yeah, it's a story of a guy who learned, again, another guy who learned how to beat the system legally 
and and uh, help somebody guess a showcase on the Price is Right to the exact dollar. And the backstory on that was incredibly fascinating. And when I saw that film, I invited him to be on my show. And uh, when he came over and saw what I had and met Janine and saw that she was recovering from this you know, brain op- uh, aneurysm that almost killed her, um, he said, this is my next documentary. And I laughed. And he said, no, this is incredible. You knew Lucille Ball, and, 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 and Janine knew Lucille Ball, and a sort of Lucy indirectly brought you together, and then you did audience warm-ups, and you're doing this show now, and all your friends are classic TV. Mm-hmm. I think this would be a great thing to share with everybody. And uh, he did have to twist my arm. And knowing me, and knowing that I talk 20 words a second, um, you know, editing me became a challenge. Um, but working with him, to get back to your original question, uh, he's got the patience of Job. Uh, he, he'd get me started on something, and I would go nonstop for 20 minutes. And then we'd finish, and he'd go home, and I'd say, I left something out. I've got to say this. And I, I said, why don't you come back, and we'll just do pickups. You know, just insert them. He said, no, because they'll look like pickups. He said, we have to do it. You have to give me another version of the story with what you want to add to it. And uh, as he likes to tell people, uh, he'll get me started, and then he'll know that it's going to be 15 minutes, and you can see his shoulders kind of shrug, and you see his head (laughs) kind of go down because he was the camera operator as well. But he persevered, you know, and that's why I say he had the patience of Job. And there were some things that I had to tell four or five times to get all my points across. That's why I keep changing wardrobe during some of the shows, right, yeah, uh, so, yeah. some of the scenes, rather, be, because we shot them on different days. But he insisted I start at the beginning and go all the way through. And it was very emotionally draining and, and physically draining, but oh, I'm that, a ham. Yeah. You stick a camera on me, and I'll go for hours, as, mm. you, as you're hearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so he was great. Yeah. He was, he's wonderful guy to deal, to deal with and, and to be directed by. And I'm one of these guys that likes to take charge and it was kind of nice not having to make those decisions. I just took orders from him, and I had no problem because he was so easy to work with. You know, one of the things that will come across when people watch the film is that they'll hear you say that you're a lucky guy. But, you know, I'm thinking about it. You made a lot of your own luck. You know, you went out and you did the work. There's an appearance that Lucille Ball made on the Merv Griffin show where you were in the audience, and I think she said you were enterprising and the right, I guess, one of the young people who has the right sort of attitude in how to do things um there is a lot of hard work too on 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 your part isn't there to to get where you are today right well a lot of it is luck a lot of it is timing being in the right place at the right time and yeah it does take a certain amount of talent since you brought up lucy there were people ogling her all the time Mm -hmm. when you know once i started to work for her we went i went everywhere with her if she was appearing on a talk show or doing a seminar at a college or something i always went with her and people would just go, oh, Miss Ball, you're so great, you're so wonderful. And, you know, she's heard that her whole life, and it's like, thank you, dear, you know. Mm-hmm. But if she noticed that you were really aggressive and really wanted to learn and really wanted to get into the business and make something of yourself, she gave you the world. And apparently she saw that with me. Um, you know, there's so many documentaries and so many uh, bad things said about her being tough and demanding. And sure. I was on the set with her for 13 weeks in her last series. And I'd already known her personally for five or six years. And, yeah, what you see what you, is what you got with her. And the thing is, you know, she's from the, the, the pioneering days of television. She's right there with Bob Hope and Milton Berle and Sid Caesar and all of these people who pioneered television back in the early 50s. And so it's, it's her domain. You're, mm-hmm. you're in her kingdom, and you do what she says. And even if you think it's right or wrong, 
And, and once you have that, she's wonderful. But there's so many people that come in there who, who didn't get that training and didn't get that experience and, and learned their craft a different way, and they can't handle it. So when she says, no, no, you've got to do it to that camera and turn your body this way, she's not yelling at you. She's just saying this is the way you have to do it. And a lot of people are overly sensitive yeah. about stuff like that, and they come away saying, God, I've never been bossed around by the star of the show like that on any, any show I work, I've worked on. You know, in today's world of wokeness, her methods probably would, would get her canceled. Um, you know, that's what it's gotten to. And it started back then with people just being overly sensitive and also being in, 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 in her presence is a little bit intimidating unless you know her, too. Bet, She's yeah. wonderful. She was absolutely great to me. I, she, that's not to say she didn't raise her voice to me a couple of times in the ten years I knew her. Uh-huh. Um, but I, one time I deserved it. And But ten seconds later it was forgotten, and you're on to the next thing with her. She's great. Yeah, that's the thing that we, we see in the film and that we've, we've been hearing about recently with, with uh, films and documentaries and the sort about her, is that she really was a genius, not just for comedy, but the television business. I mean, she b- before the pioneering days of TV, she was, you know, at RKO and, and you know, uh, working in, in film, um, so she knew how to how to do this. You know how to play this part. Um, you knew her in the last ten years of her life. The, the the idea of her as 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 the beauty that she was on uh, in the, those early days and the, 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 that she was sort of marketed as in, in terms of film early on. She was still that. She was still charismatic like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody gave her a lot of credit in the I Love Lucy days for being extremely pretty on camera and uh-huh. being able to take seltzer in the face or a pie in the face and all that. Um, and, yeah, I, I thought she overdid the makeup during the years that the, uh, I worked with her. I didn't mm. think, you know, because I, I, it was like two Lucys. I'd be at her house, and there's the Lucy that could have been a friend of my grandmother's, you right, know, yeah. just just a 70-something old um, woman, you know, just, hi, Stu, how are you, darling, and everything, and then, and then she, we could be on the set, and she'd get in all of the makeup and, and have the wig on and all of that stuff, and she'd say, how, hi, Stu, how are you, darling, it's like, oh, my God, Lucille Ball knows my name, you know, but, <laughs> but the Lucy that was at the, with the Lucy that was at the house, they were the one and the same person, but, you know, she, she, the, there, there was an awe uh, and a glamour of, of being with her on the set when she was all made up and we were filming that series, yeah. Um, intimidation, yes, but also, oh, my God, I'm in the presence of Lucille Ball here, you know. Um, I got used to that right away because I, I knew her first as, as, as my teacher mm-hmm. at school yeah. and, then, and then as a part-time boss when I, I handled her archives for her. And then when she said, I want people around me that I know really well, and she gave me a full-time job on her show, and then gave me a part on the show, right. um, you know, is that, is that someone who's a terrible, horrible person that, but that bosses people around and is nasty to people? Come on. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to give me a, a part in the show and then insist I had more lines after the writers wrote me one line. She was really upset about that. She said, mm-hmm. give him something else to do. Is that a terrible, horrible, wicked person? Give me a break. Yeah. You know? <laughs> could, could, could the life with Lucy show, could that have worked and, and lasted longer, do you think? Yes. Um, if, if they did it a little bit more sophisticated and did it more like a Golden Girls type show, if it mm. was, because uh, that's, that's when uh, Golden Girls was hot, it was when yeah. we were on the air there. But, you know, I, 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 I blame the writers and I don't blame the writers. Lucy just wanted to work. Uh, to have Gail Gordon back there and to be in the presence of both of them was, was surreal. You know, growing up in the, I grew up in the Mr. Mooney days when, mm-hmm. when he was the banker. Um, you know, but but I think the problem was is that I Love Lucy was on sometimes three or four times a day in certain cities, 
and it was really hot back then, uh, probably even hotter than it is now. I mean, it's still a, you know, you know, one of the most treasured shows out there. And I think the writers just thought that they could give the public the same type of show they did in the 50s. Um, there were two problems with that. The audiences at the time were more sophisticated and more into a Golden Girls-type humor, insult humor, mm -hmm. as opposed to slapstick. And then Lucy, of course, was 75 and not Lucy Ricardo anymore. And that those two elements made people feel kind of sorry for her. We weren't expecting that. And we got no gauge from the live audiences that came to the show. It was through the roof every week. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was too much. Just like me being on the set in her presence, but in a professional way, the audiences didn't care. I, I always made a joke that she could have, she, she could let out gas and get a standing ovation. You know, mm. that that that's how it was. Sadly, so we got no gauge from the audience of whether the shows were good or not. They laughed at everything. They they over responded, and then the shows. Gary Morton, her husband, edited the shows with the with the actual editor, and and he left every response that she got in. If she got a 30-second walk-on applause at the beginning of the show, he left that in. And people at home are turned off by that, mm. you know? Um, it's not a stage play, and you're not there in person. And so what we did worked well for the 300 people in the bleachers, but it didn't translate well uh, to the audience at home. Plus the fact that they put us on on Saturday night hoping that we would do for ABC what Cosby did for NBC. Right. And then, then, then ABC changed management halfway through our run, and Brandon Stoddard became head of the ABC, and he was never a Lucy fan. So we didn't even get a back nine. He just said, pay everybody off and cancel the show. And that was the first time she was ever canceled in her life, mm -hmm. and she was devastated. And I think that contributed to the decline of her health over the last few years. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Gary Morton. Um, he, he was such a, a, a presence in her life, uh, but, but also yeah. professionally, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Um, she made him her new Desi. Mm -hmm. um, when, when he came into the picture in the early 60s and she was doing the Lucy show, he, he, she wanted him to learn every aspect of production the way Desi had learned it, you know, by trial and error in the 50s. They built that empire up together, and neither of them kind of knew what they did. It was, you know, an accident that he said, we'll do this show on film with multiple cameras in front of an audience. That's, as you know, New York wanted them to do it live out of there with live television cameras. Mm -hmm. And he just said, well, why can't we do it here in Hollywood on film? And that had not been happened. Groucho Marx was doing his show similarly to that, but it, not, not in a sitcom with, with flat lighting and everything that they needed. And he didn't know how to do that, but the one thing they did know how to do was hire people that could and sit back and let them do their jobs. Now, Gary's problem was his background was Catskill Comics mm -hmm. from upstate New York, and he's from that Jack Carter Borscht Belt type thing. And and he, his you know uh, his style of comedy was not hers, and so he kind of got pushed into learning how to do all that stuff. And there were a lot of people from the Desi days that worked with Lucy throughout that period that kind of resented him a little bit because you know um, he was not Desi. He didn't have the creative uh, ability and the business mind that Desi had, but she tried to mold him into that. Uh, and I won't go any further into that because I could, we could do a whole show on that. But the yeah. main thing was that everybody, everybody, including me, and I came in at the tail end of this, thought you, know, you were very complimentary toward my marriage to Janine. Well, they had a solid marriage, too. Yeah. He was so good for her personally because she knew where he was every minute of every day if he was said he was going to play golf he would be at the club 
and it got to the point where she trusted him so much she never had to make follow-up phone calls just to see. Those last few years that she was with Desi, apparently the pots and pans were flying a lot, and she didn't trust him, and and, uh, she found some phone numbers and found out where he was when he said he was editing the show and things like that. But she never had that issue with Gary. That marriage was made in heaven, and everybody agreed, despite the fact that she tried to make him another Desi Arnaz. He was great for her in the marriage situation. And he trusted you a great deal, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you, you send a 20-something kid into a film vault with, you know, thousands of reels of film, who is a film collector himself and has his own collection of Lucy shows that he amassed over the years, and you're trusting him, you know, the vault never <laughs> let anybody back there yeah. unless they were an employee of the vault. And the vault people trusted me to go back there and uh, to, to inventory everything. And then when Entertainment Tonight or somebody like that needed a clip from one of the shows, take it back to my office, transfer it, and then return the print. No, he trusted me immensely, and I never betrayed that trust. It was an honor and a privilege to work for them. Yeah. When did Stu's show start? 2006. And um, is that how you describe what you do for a living, say? Well, uh, you can't make a living. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with that. I don't know how you're doing with your show, but you, you you can't make a living off of doing this type of work. I, I started the show because I missed doing the audience warm-up. Mm. I sort of got aged out of the business. All of the producers I worked for were about 10 years older than me, and around the turn of the century, sounds so weird now, but this is 2022, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my hair started to gray. And, and uh, you know, warm-up guys are supposed to be in their 20s, and they're supposed to be like stand-up comics, even though they're not. There's a big difference. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the main thing was, is you know, again, it's who you know. The talent helps, but it's who you know. And all of my producer friends were not getting sitcoms to uh, write anymore, write and produce. And so I, I kind of got aged out when they did. And I missed it. And I wanted to get back in front of an audience. And I had come into some money. I had a relative pass away and leave me some money. And so I started an Internet radio station, a full-fledged radio station. I ended up losing my shirt on it. But the anchor for, for the station was my two-hour weekly show. And because I met so many people in the industry uh, from my warm-up days, uh, and I love classic TV, uh, my first guests were people like Pat Harrington and Bonnie Franklin, you know, mm. from one day at a time. I had given away tickets on that show uh, when I first got in the business, and I got to be friends with them. And then I, and then I started my, my, my classic TV friends like Janet Waldo, who was the voice of Judy Jetson, and Dwayne Hickman, you know, Dobie Gillis. And they, they knew my love for this stuff, and they knew that I knew what I was talking about, and they'd come over, and we'd do two hours talking about their career, not a five-minute sound bite like some of these other shows give. And and uh, they loved it. They loved the fact that they could talk about themselves for two hours. And, of course, you know, Peter tells Paul, Paul tells Mary, Mary tells June, and it gets out there, hey, this guy's got this show where you can talk about your career, and he, and even though he interrupts you too much, you can still get all that <laughs> stuff out. <laughs> and, and it just built from there. And that's how I ended up getting people like Bob Barker and Dick Van Dyke and, you, you know, uh, uh, Shirley Jones. Right. All of these people, you know, they wanted to, Jonathan Winters. They all wanted to come over and do the show, and you know, and then you become friends with them because you spend all of this time with them. And unlike a Tonight Show where they're on for fifteen minutes and they're gone, we talk for two hours, and I take them to lunch, and you know, we talk there, and 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 that's that's, and then it built up. I finally, when streaming video streaming became affordable, 
and and uh, I had built up a large enough audience, I switched over to television in 2017. So I've been doing, and I went to every other week because I'm getting older and I'm getting more tired, and you know it it takes a lot more work to do a video version of the show than audio, and so uh-huh. I've been doing it every other week now for the last five years. I go back to an earlier question. I mean, as a kid, could you imagine you know you doing this, and and here you are, you know? No, the, no, I would have said you're out of your mind. It's um, it's you know, absolutely amazing, you know. Yeah, well, it took me 51 years to find the right woman too. Yeah. You know, I had lots of relationships, but none of them stuck. And then there was just something, and neither of us were looking for it. Janine had been divorced twice. I had been divorced once. I was happy being a single parent, and neither of us were looking for it, and it, it just happened, you yeah, know. Yeah. So. Uh, back to your warm-up days. Um, you mentioned you, you, you'd warmed up for one day at a time. Silver Spoons is featured in, in, in the film, in the documentary. Um, right. Did you, were you the warm-up guy in Life with Lucy? No. Well, there's an interesting story. Uh, uh, first of all, I didn't, I didn't do warm-up on one day at a time. I, was, I gave out the tickets oh, okay. for the show. Yeah. I was barely 20 years old, and they weren't going to trust me with something like that. Yeah. The Silver Spoons I did do for two years. Now, the Life with Lucy story is interesting. We're talking about Gary Morton. Okay? Yeah. So, so Gary was a stand-up comic you know, for years and years and years. And, and um, starting in the late, mid-60s, I think, during the... She got married to him in 61, and then she went back to television in 62. So maybe he did do. Maybe he did do all six seasons of the Lucy show. He did the warm-up there. You know, Lucy insisted on that because uh, uh, of his uh, stand-up comic background. And mm-hmm. there is a difference between being a warm-up guy and a stand-up comic. The audiences that go to these shows don't want to be told about routines going to the dentist or something. Yeah. They want to feel like they're a part of the show. So you're more a host than you are a stand-up at these things. But that's not to say you don't make jokes. You know, I get people on their feet, and I play off of them, and that's what a warm-up guy does. Gary did a combination of that. He did he did some of his Borscht act from the Catskill days, but, you know, he also took questions, and, and because he was, you know, Lucy's husband, uh, he would link Lucy to the audience prior to the show mm. um, and, and in those days. But by the time Life with Lucy came around, you know, she wanted him to do the warm-up again, and he did. Um, but he would never bring her out ahead of the show. He brought Gail out and the rest of the cast, and they all got their applause. And that's that's one of the things that suffered was, you know, he wanted her to have a walk-on applause every week, and mm. he didn't want to cut it down when it aired. So, you know, where she says, a couple of shows you can see, she's got her hands on her hips waiting for the audience to stop. That's, you know. <laughs> but anyway, what happened was, it was the hottest ticket in town. And because of my background in audience procurement, one of my jobs working as Gary's assistant behind the scenes there was to handle the guest list for the show. And we had so many requests, and we only did one audience, you know, three weeks a month. And uh, we started to get an overflow just from the studio, not even from the general public. Everybody wanted to see Lucy and Gail in person doing the show. Yeah. And they didn't care about the scripts. They just wanted to see her. So what I started to do was put 10, 15, 20 people in the run-throughs that we had uh, two hours before we'd film the show. And nobody was in full makeup then. It was just to run through the show, make sure the cameras were in the right place, make sure the actors knew their lines. It was just a, like a dress rehearsal without full makeup. And uh, in the beginning, I would spread those people out in the bleachers so they weren't noticed. But as we went on and on and on, more people wanted to see the show, and Lucy was insistent, don't turn anybody away. And it got to the point at the very last show we did, the 13th episode, uh-huh. we had a full audience for the dress rehearsal. Wow. And I went to Gary and I said, um, 
you know, we're going to have 250 people sitting in the bleachers for the dress rehearsal today. And he was kind of upset about that because Lucy didn't have her full makeup on. And, and he said, you better go tell Lucy, you know, let make sure it's all right. And I yeah. told her. And, she, you know, he was always worried. And she's like, great, great. We can see where the laughs fall. This is wonderful. Bring them in. You know, she was wonderful about that. Yeah. She loved the public and she loved the response and everything. So I went back to him and I said, um, she she said it's fine, and he was like kind of startled. He said, "Really?" I said, "Well, yeah, go ask her." And I said, "So I think you you, you need to do a warm up to this audience because um, we've got so many people." And he said, "No, I'm not going to do a warm up to them. We're not even filming this thing." Mm. He says, "You want to do the warm up? You do it." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, but we're not paying you. You know, this is a <laughs> difficult pr- producer, right?" Yeah, yeah. And he says, "He says, but you can put it on your resume that you did a warm up at, at Life with Lucy," mm. and that was good enough for me. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, unbeknownst to Lucy, I went out there and did the warm-up. And even though she's focused on the set and everything, she's also listening to me. And I'm getting laughs. I'm doing what I have done for six or seven years at that point and, and answering Lucy trivia questions because I'm an expert at that, too, which she knew. Yeah. And then we, did, we finished the run-through, and I brought the cast out just as if it was a filming, and they all took bows. And they didn't care that Lucy didn't have her makeup on. You know, she had a, a makeup thing around her neck, you know, like a bib type yeah. of thing through yeah. the whole thing because they'd started the base. Anyway, the audience leaves, and Lucy, I'm, I'm on the bleachers, right? And Lucy's on the stage, and she crooks her finger at me and says, I want to see you in my dressing room, okay? So you know what's going through my mind here, sure. okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I go to the dressing room and knock on the door. She, Come on in, dear. And she says, close the door. Oh, oh God, you know, here we go. And she said, she, she points at me, and, and not saying a word, she just points her finger at me constantly, and then after about 10 seconds, which was the longest 10 seconds I've had in my whole life, she said, you were very good out there. You were very, very good out there. She said, I'm going to talk to Gary. I want you and him to take turns doing the show every week when we film this. Wow. All right, so I breathe a sigh of relief. Well, little did I know that this was the last episode of the show, mm. and apparently Gary knew it before we did the show. He didn't want to tell anybody. Aaron Spelling and Gary and the other producers were called to a meeting at ABC that morning and were told that they were going to cancel the show and just pay off the nine episodes for the back nine. So I'm wondering to this day whether whether that why he let me do the warm-up then knowing that she would have liked it and knowing that she would have said you guys are going to take turns yeah, you know yeah. and he, he let me do it because he knew there would be no more shows i i don't know i uh, let me just i liked gary a lot he yeah. was kind of a different he was kind of a different person at work because his main uh, thing there was to make sure she was happy he didn't care who you know who whose feelings he hurt or whose toes he stepped on um he was a different person at work and i learned a lot about him in a working atmosphere that I wasn't fond of. Um, but, you know, once the show was gone and we were back to just me being their film archivist, he was great again. Yeah. He wasn't so great in, in a five-day-a-week working situation, sure. which is a shame, because yeah. I really liked him. And I lost, I have to be honest, I lost a little bit of respect for him as a result of the way he treated me and the way he treated other people. And I think if Lucy knew that that was happening, she would have she would have been upset. With yeah. Let's just did, leave it at that. Did so, you keep in touch? Anyway, you asked. Yeah. I hope that was okay. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I've always been fascinated by him because I remember him in the, remember he played, um, I can't remember um, whose dad he played in Postcards from the Edge. Uh, he played the agent. He oh, played, the agent, uh, that's right, yeah. 
Right, and in Lenny, the movie Lenny, he played a Milton Berle type. He was yeah. a really good actor. Yeah. In, in fact, I'll give you one other little, I'll make this one really short. Sure. Peter Graves was signed to do an episode with us playing uh, a love interest of Lucy's. And during rehearsal, he twisted his ankle. And it was two days before filming, and, and he was hobbling around, and we were all concerned that uh, he, he might not have been able to do the filming. Well, he was. He, he was okay. He was still, a, you, you, if you watch the episode, you could see him limping just slightly, mm. but he covered it up really well. But there was talk about, we have to get another actor to play Lucy's love interest in this episode. And, and both Tom Watson, who was the co-worker, co, uh, and I who went to Gary and said, you should play this part. You should, you should play the love interest. It'll be great. The fans will love it. And he was, he was kind of nonchalant about it. He goes, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I don't think I should do that, blah, blah, blah. And we were both going to go to Lucy and suggest it, you yeah. know, but we didn't because Peter Graves ended up uh, d doing the part. But Gary would have been great. Yeah. Gary, Gary made some appearances in a lot of the Lucy shows and Here's Lucy. And he's a really good actor, yeah. really good. Did you keep in touch with him until his death? I did. Like I said, the, the experience with life with Lucy was, was kind of soured me on him for a while. Um, and then and, then, and uh, uh, we kind of lost touch. And Lucy died in 1989. And, yeah, there was a, a, a period there where, you know, it was just a change. Mm -hmm. He moved out to the Palm Springs house. She had left that to him in his will. And, and then we kind of lost track after that because, you know, I wasn't the, the film archivist anymore. That all went down to Lucy Arnaz, and I showed her how to read everything and do everything. And, you know, it's just like a, a, any regime, a business regime, they want to bring their own people in, and I can understand that. They let us all go, and she took that over. And then about four years after that, Gary got diagnosed with lung cancer from all the years he had smoked. Mm -hmm. And I felt really bad that I didn't keep in touch with him. It was in Army Archer's column in Variety, and I, I sent him a letter. I didn't want to call him. Um, saying, you know, I'm really sorry I didn't uh, keep in touch with you, and, and it's something like this that, you know, m made me want to write this letter to you. I really apologize. And he called me, mm. and he said, well, why don't you come to He says, I'm feeling fine. Um, you know, the, the chemo seems to be working. I'm not sick and everything. Why don't you, he said, why don't you and Tom Watson, that's the co-worker, he said, why don't you guys come down and see us? Because he had remarried already. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and, and we drove down to Palm Springs, and he'd redone the house, their Palm Springs house. It was absolutely gorgeous. And he took us to dinner. And um, we just talked about the old days, and he was, his new wife was fine with us talking about it and her presence and everything. And then when we left, I think it was only the second time in all the years that I knew him, we hugged each other. Mm. I, I hugged him the first time I saw him after Lucy died, and then, and then, but he, I initiated that one. He initiated this one. He hugged me, and then he went and, went and hugged Tom. And he wasn't a warm, fuzzy guy when it came to stuff like that. And I was really touched by that. And it's yeah. like, you know, he really is a decent guy. It's just that, you know, he got conditioned the way he was in business and all those years of protecting her that I guess he felt in that environment he had to be a different person. And you know, I forgave him, you know. And then, and then he, he, didn't, he didn't last much longer after that. He got, you know, as cancer does when you have lung cancer, they removed one of his lungs, mm -hmm. but it m metastasized. And then, you know. It took him in 1999, I think, almost 10 years to the day, I think, that, that she died. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it, was a, it was surreal, you know. The, the whole 10-year experience of working with them and, uh, and knowing them was, like you said, if you told me that when I was a kid, I would have said, you're crazy. Yeah. You're absolutely crazy. I remember as a kid, we'd, we'd drive around Beverly Hills looking at the homes of the stars, and we'd... We'd drive by Lucy's house, and I'd say to my dad, just stop. Let's just wait 10 minutes and see if anybody comes out, you know? <laughs> We're like yeah. a tourist. Yeah. 
and I t- and I told Lucy that, you know, and here here I am in my early 20s looking out the window from Gary's den at cars <laughs> doing the exact same thing <laughs> that I did 10, 10, 12 years earlier when I was 10 or 11 years old with my parents. So. And she never went out. Yeah. She never came out that front door. She no. always went out the side door and drove out from the side of the house. So you'd never see her out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, so I wanted to ask you, um, because we see your, your marvelous collections uh, in the film, well, what do you tell people who say, why bother keeping DVDs or film or tape when everything is streaming now? Because streaming stuff can go away. Mm. I'm asked that all the time, Joe. And, and uh, uh, don't take anything that you see online for granted. Things yeah. can disappear from YouTube. Hulu can lose a contract with somebody. Netflix can, can, can uh, 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 redo their whole, their whole platform. Um, you need something tangible. If you love something enough and, and you're too lazy to get off your duff and pick up a DVD and put it in a machine and hit play, and you'd rather sit there with your remote and just go to Hulu and press a button, you, there's going to be one day when you try to do that and it's going to be gone. So uh, that, that kind of explains my archives, yeah. and that kind of explains all of the DVDs and laser discs that mm, I still have. Right. Um, and it's all going to my daughter, and she's been pre- properly programmed. This stuff is never going to be seen on eBay. It's never going to be sold. She wants to keep the torch going. Whether she has an interest in it or not, that's a whole different thing. But she knows that this stuff is very valuable and that, uh, you know, it, it's not to be distributed anywhere. And I told her in the will, I've got a bunch of millennials, uh, people that follow my show her age, and they're next in line if she decides to get rid of any of it. It's, 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 C.J. Wallace is one of the people who, who can have some of this stuff after I leave the planet, but you'll never see it sold on eBay or yeah. anything like that. It's well, never going to be. That's great to hear because it's, it's, it, it looks like a marvelous collection, and, and thank goodness that you're, you're keeping it alive for a lot of people. It's been such a pleasure to, to talk to you, Stu, and, and to see this film. My best to you and Janine. Well, thank you so much, Joe. You're, you're a great host, and, and you've got the patience of Job to put up with my ranting and long <laughs> explanations here. <laughs> the website for more is at stewsshow.com. The film is called Stu's Show, and it's available now via streaming. Stu Showstack, join me on the line from Pine Mountain Club, California in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.